People would hear us, would see us, and understand our difficulty, would sympathize with our plight, and would grant us our new school building. It would be grand, and we would live happily ever after. Barbara Johns. Hello, listeners, and welcome back. This is Turning Tables of History with Annika Doheny. This is episode two, and today we'll be talking about the event where Barbara Johns walked out. All right, so before we jump right into the podcast, I just wanted to make a little PSA. I do have a head cold. Um, It's towards the tail end, so it's not as bad, but I do have a stuffy nose, and I'm sorry if I sound super nasally or if I sniffle every once in a while, but it's going to happen, and I just wanted to apologize beforehand. All right, so now we got that out of the way, we can jump right into the podcast. So at just 16 years old, Barbara Johns led a student body strike in hopes to end segregation and discrimination in children's education. This became one of the five different court cases associated with Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. On April 23, 1951, Barbara announced her plan on the auditorium stage at her school, which was Robert Russa Matan High School in Farmville, Virginia. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Um, but her plan was that the entire black student body of the school was going to walk out and not return until they were given a better school facility like the one that the white students had. A few of the 450 students were worried that they would get arrested for walking out. And Barbara responded with, the Farmville jail isn't, just isn't big enough to hold us all. So leading up to Barbara Johns deciding to create a strike and have all the black students walk out, um, she dealt with a lot of life issues, um, the way she was raised and how her education played into that. And there was one specific event that just really pushed her over the edge. So one morning she was helping her younger sisters get ready for school, you know, making sure they're getting dressed, eating breakfast, brushing their teeth, you know, the whole nine yards. And she got them out of the door and waited for them at their bus stop until they got on the bus. And while she was waiting for her own bus, she realized that she forgot her lunch. So she ran back to her house, grabbed her lunch, and hurried back to the bus stop. But by then, she had missed her bus. So she stood on the side of the road, waiting to be hitchhiked so she could make it to her first period on time. And as she was waiting, she noticed that the white student bus drove past her. And she also noticed that it was half full, unlike her bus that is always overcrowded. And when she noticed this, she realized that the black students have a really unfair advantage compared to the white students, and she really wanted to make a change about this. Now, to some listeners, they may this may not seem like a very big deal, considering that at Jordan High School, for example, there are some buses that are super overcrowded, where there are some that just aren't. And, you know, that's normal. You know, different school buses go on different routes. They pick up a different number of students. But at the time, having a bus that was... Um, discriminated against black people was a very big deal. And added to this, the school building that was designated for black students was very small compared to the 450 students that attended there every day. The school board built tar paper shacks outside the school to handle overflow. And now keep in mind, these weren't heated. So imagine what it was like in the winter in Virginia. It was so cold. On the contrary, the white school had two stories and plenty of room to hold the 400 students. Furthermore, the black school had no laboratories, no gyms, and no cafeteria. Barbara was close to her music teacher and always talked to her about how unfair it was. And then one day, her music teacher was like, well, why don't you just do something about it? And Barbara thought at the time that this was very dismissive and that the music teacher was just trying to, you know, like, you can't do anything about it. Like, why don't you just do something about it? But after about months of thinking and, you know, looking back at it, she decided that she was going to do something about it. And you bet she did do something about it. Now, 
what she did exactly um, in order to get all the students into the auditorium without getting in trouble. Well, she went above and beyond and forged a note that was supposed to be coming from the superintendent and the principal, and she gave it to every single teacher within the school building, stating that the teachers themselves needed to take the students in their class and bring them to the auditorium at a certain time for an assembly, and it worked. And so once the students were all in the auditorium with Barbara on the stage, she gave her plan in her speech, and she walked out and everyone followed her. Now, after two weeks of the students not returning to the school, the superintendent was like, yo, um, if your students don't come back to school, he's talking to the parents, by the way, you'll be in a lot of trouble. And Barbara took legal action to this and contacted the NAACP's branch office in Richmond, Virginia. Now that's a lawyer's office. And the organization was on board, but they urged Barbara to change her move away from a new building but rather towards integration within education. Barbara joined the court case Davis versus Country County School Board of Prince Edward County, which was led by lawyers Martin A. Martin and Spots Robinson III. So at the time that she started the court case Davis versus County School Board of Prince Edward County, Barbara was living with her biological parents. But shortly after the court case, you know, spiked up and started, you know, on its trails, um, Barbara was receiving a lot of threats, so her parents sent her to live with her uncle in Montgomery to finish school so she wouldn't be directly in the crossfire of the whole trial. And four years after the strike, the Montgomery bus boycott broke out. And five years after that, the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins in North Carolina. These events together made Barbara Johns a civil rights activist. She married Reverend William Holland Roland Powell, that's a long name, and together they had five children. Barbara passed away in 1991 at age 51 from bone cancer. So now that we have the overall coverage of what actually happened when Barbara Johns walked out, I kind of want to take a deep dive into talking about um, why this was such a big deal and how it changed people's opinions. So even though enslaved people were released from slavery on January 1st, 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation, true rights were far from being grasped. After the Civil War and the abolishment of slavery, the whites that were living in the South started to recreate civil rights to include African Americans. But then in 1865, black codes were created. So black codes were kind of like a loophole to continue to use African-Americans as labor sources and to limit their rights as American citizens. And a major part of the black codes were that every African-American would have to sign a yearly labor contract. And if they were refused, they would be threatened to be arrested. And under the reconstruction of President Andrew Johnson, states were given the right to make their own laws about the freedom of African-Americans. And it really wasn't a federal situation anymore. In South Carolina, African-Americans were prohibited from having any occupation other than a farmer or a servant. And if they wanted a different occupation, they would have to pay an annual tax fee that would range anywhere between $10 to $100. It doesn't seem like a whole lot, but $10 in the 1860s is worth over $300 now. So imagine having to pay that much money to have an occupation. That's, that's ridiculous. And Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 was ruled by the Supreme Court that racially segregating American citizens and work facilities was constitutional as long as the facilities were equal between black and white. And this created the separate but equal doctrine that lasted for nearly 60 years. In the early 1950s, the National Association for the Amendment, the Advancement of Colored People, 
the NAACP, were already working at diminishing segregation in public schools. And the Brown versus the Board of Education is one of the most famous cases that occurred in 1951 due to a student named Linda Brown being denied entrance to Topeka's all-white schools. And Brown argued that the schools in the area were nowhere near as nice as the white schools and that it was a violation of the section of the 14th Amendment called the Equal Protection Clause. This section states that no state can, and I quote, deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, unquote. So originally, the Supreme Court justices were divided on the verdict, and Chief Justice Fred M. Vinson was the tiebreaker, which was leaning towards, you know, segregation within public schools is constitutional. However, in September of 1953, before the case was even heard, Vinson passed away, and Earl Warren of California was replaced by President D. Eisenhower. And the final decision was made on May 17, 1954, and Warren wrote, I quote, in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place, unquote. And then the following year, in May, the Supreme Court issued a second opinion, which was called Brown versus Board of Education II. While many of the northern states were very accepting of the verdict of desegregation, many of the southern states were against it. One example is that Governor Orville Faubus of Arkansas called in the National Guard to protect the Little Rock High School from African-American students in 1957, and nine students were able to enter the school under armed guards. Um, and despite all of these cases and events, desegregation in schools did not end right away, but there was a major spark in the civil rights movement. In 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, fueling the Montgomery bus boycott. And then in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and in 1965, the Voting Rights Act was passed, and in 1968, the Fair Housing Act was passed. All right, that's all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I will release another episode this coming week, and I hope all of you guys will listen. Thank you guys so much. And this is Turning Tables with in History with Annika Doheny. Mm-hmm.